Just the collective wow. <laughs> right? That's all I have. Just the collective wow. My goodness. What a day. What truths. Right? Isn't it wonderful to sing the truths of the Lord together in community? There's a lot in the world that threatens to divide and disunify today. One of the best and most precious things that we have to do on Sunday morning is to unify around the truths of our Lord in song. What a great way to come together as a body of Christ. Well, this is the last Sunday that we have for our memory verse that we're going uh, to continue with. Next month, a new one, but this month, one more week in this one. Mark 7.15, let's say together. I'm still thinking about it as well, sorry. (laughs) There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Mark 7, 15. Very good. We've been studying the gospel of Mark together. We're taking it uh, in chunks as we are hoping to conclude our series before we get into Advent, which, believe it or not, is not that far away. Next Sunday is November already. So the last section of Mark's gospel that we studied together was actually framed by these miraculous feedings that we saw. There was one at the beginning in Mark chapter 6, and then there was one that concluded in Mark chapter 8. And the section that we are getting into uh, to study today is actually framed by two miraculous healings, and it is healings of the blind. And so Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, we have the healing of a blind man. And as we conclude today in the text where we're going to end, Mark chapter 10, 46 to 52, will end with the healing of Bartimaeus. And so today in our study, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and take them, turn them right to Mark chapter 8. We're going to begin in chapter 8, verse 31, and we are going to zoom in on three specific portions of Mark's gospel where Jesus is revealing his own soon coming death and resurrection. And while he's doing that in this section, he's instructing his followers on the true meaning of discipleship. Discipleship is so important. It's so appropriate that we had Mindy here today, and as a church planner, church planners that we support all over the world, they're actively engaged in this work of discipleship and disciple-making. And after we come to Christ, what we do now is begin to grow as disciples. And what does that look like? What are the lessons that disciples need to know? What are the most important things that we need to pass on to our children, to our grandchildren, to our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends, those who are also followers of Jesus? How can we faithfully continue in a world that's consistently under siege? We see that. The early church, the church that was receiving the gospel as it was written from Mark, they were a church that was living under siege, under the siege of the Roman Empire, under the siege of Pharisees and Sadducees that were still existing within their congregation. In the church today, around the world, many churches continue to be under siege. What lessons are important for us to hold on to, to know in regard to our discipleship? 
It's important that we see Jesus for who he truly is. And last week when we left off in the text, you remember what Peter proclaimed in Mark chapter 8, verse 30? You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Seeing Jesus for who he is and confessing him for who he truly is, this is the beginning of discipleship, of growing in our relationship with Christ. And so today, as we enter the text, we're going to explore several timely lessons related to our discipleship journey, lessons for us to pass along to those who God has placed in our life that we are discipling ourselves. So before we begin to read this morning, let's pray and ask God to help us in our time together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its living and active nature. Thank you that even now your spirit is working, preparing us to receive exactly what you would have for us today. Lord, we live in a world under siege. We function as a body of Christ in a world under siege. And yet, the testimony of your scriptures points to your faithfulness. And what an example, what a testimony for us to follow. We desire to follow it faithfully. And Lord, sometimes along the way, as I imagine today will be, we are challenged by your example. You talk much in your time here on earth. You talk much of your soon coming death and betrayal. You prepare your disciples for suffering and you promise to be with us in it. So we can hold on to that hope. And we can walk even through the hard and difficult days with the hope that you are with us. We are not alone. And that you will carry us. And we thank you for those truths. We pray that we would be changed as we encounter your text this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 31 and read through chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus began to teach them, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The end is drawing near for Jesus. 
urgency is growing. Jesus is focusing on making his disciples aware of his own and their soon coming suffering. And Jesus' faithfulness in suffering, it should frame the portraits of our own seasons of suffering. Disciples of Jesus suffer in many of the same ways that he did. Virtuous Peter in our text, always virtuous, he can't handle this reality. Not his Messiah. Not this way. No way, Jesus. Peter's rebuking Jesus. I don't know about you. Probably not a wise decision to rebuke the Savior of the world. And perhaps why Jesus responds in such strong terminology. Get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter's mind is set on escaping suffering and discomfort. And Jesus reminds that this mind is a mind that's set on our own interests rather than God's. One of the earliest and most important lessons for a disciple of Christ to learn and to embrace is that Christian formation and spiritual growth does not happen well in environments of security and comfort. That's hard, but it's true. Peter is after comfort. He's after security for both he and for Jesus. He's virtuous. He has noble things in his mind. Why should the Savior of the world have to suffer? And Jesus reminds him, Peter, this is not the way. The way is through suffering. In verse 34, he calls the crowd together and takes us even deeper into this mystery related to discipleship. Following in the ways of Jesus is a call to daily death, as Paul would later say it. It's an intentional taking up of one's cross. Neglecting comfort, neglecting security, the disciple takes up her cross she embraces the gospel at the expense of her own convenience. And in doing so, she discovers the true value and worth of her salvation. In giving away or laying down her own life, the disciple is promised to discover life's real purpose and life's real meaning. No shame in her embrace of Christ, she comes into the glory of her Father through the radiance of Christ's holiness and righteousness. What a picture. Through the fiery trials of suffering, disciples are refined by the Spirit. We're refined as we embrace and we gaze upon Christ. And as we do that, we're made ready to enter into the glory of eternity. Both as one corporate body, the church, the bride of Christ, and as individual sons and daughters of the living God through Christ. 
This is the lesson, some of the lessons in discipleship. The world would have us take the easy way out. That's the world's solution. Find the simplest, quickest, most microwavable way and do it. Discipleship needs to happen in a crock pot. And that takes time. Time. As Jesus continues on with his disciples, he takes a small group of them as chapter 9 opens up onto the mountain where they're going to witness the miracle of his transfiguration. It's a powerful occasion. It's another occasion where guess, guess which disciple opens his mouth again. Go ahead, say it. Peter, chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus is up on the mountain. All of these extraordinary, miraculous things are taking place. They're seeing uh, images of Elijah and Moses. And, and right away, Peter sees, he recognizes, he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's stay and make three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter, Peter struggled often with speaking when it would have been better to watch and to listen. Oh, friends, I'm a lot like Peter. Maybe some of you sitting here today are as well. One of the markers or indicators of a growing disciple is one who is able to discern when to speak and when to watch and listen. This would not be Peter's example or Peter's habit. And what happens when they're on this mountain, if you read there in chapter 9, a cloud overshadows them, and a voice comes from within the cloud. It's God speaking. He says, this is my one dear son. Then what does it say? Listen to him. Listen to him. Hearing... They were not hearing, seeing. They were not seeing. And as they descend from this mountaintop experience, there is still this lingering confusion over Jesus' talk of suffering and death. This is a major theme in this portion of Mark's Gospel we're in today. Look at verse 12. They're, they're deliberating among themselves in chapter 9. Why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be despised? It does not make sense to them. And while some of Jesus' disciples were together with him on the mountain, there were other disciples below that had found themselves in a rather uncomfortable situation. Apart from Jesus, these disciples had attempted and failed at healing a boy who was possessed by a demon. 
The text unravels in chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, and we come to discover that these disciples, instead of relying on the power of God within them, had been relying entirely on their own power, failing to cast out the demon. Without a firm belief or a dependence on Christ, we disciples will always find ourselves floundering to do the things that he's already equipped and empowered us to do. Look at verse 19, verse 19 of chapter 9. This is Jesus speaking to them. They haven't been able to heal this child. They're confused. What's going on? We saw Jesus cast out demons before. We've casted out demons before. Why can't we do this? What's happening? Verse 19, Jesus says, You unbelieving generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I endure you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus' words here, they're reminiscent of Moses' words, are they not? Remember Moses' words? This stiff-necked people. They're reminiscent of words of the prophets. How long, O Lord? Hard words. And as the father of the boy brings the child to Jesus, he begins to recount the desperate situation of his son and what he's going through. Look at verse 22. He concludes, But if, if you are able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us, Jesus. Jesus' response follows in verse 23. If you are able, all things are possible for the one who believes. And what does the father cry out? I believe. Help my unbelief. In every disciple's life, friends, in every disciple's life, there are moments where perhaps we echo this same cry. This is hard. I did not want to walk through this season. I feel alone. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. There are some in this room today who are in a season right now where that very cry is on their tongue. Dependency is key, friends. It's a cry that drives this father to dependency. Dependency on Christ. It's a cry that for the disciple of Jesus should drive us towards dependency. Dependency is key in the life of the disciple. But dependence on the right person. The person of Jesus. Both his presence... And if you recognize in the text, this man's dependent on the compassion of Christ as well. And it's often those two things that are hardest for us to realize and rehearse when we ourselves are frightened, hurt, uncertain, lonely, walking through our own difficult and uncomfortable seasons of life. Yet Jesus' own life 
and testimony reassure his disciples and should be a reassurance to us that he is always with us. And when he is with us, he is with us in effect. And that Jesus is able to meet the despair and the difficulty and even the death in our life. He's able to meet us in those places with hope and with life. That's the testimony of Jesus' life in the Gospels. It's the testimony of Jesus' life with his disciples today. Look at how this scenario concludes in verse 25. Jesus saw that the crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly... It came out, and the boy was like a corpse. Now think back to me, with me. Think back with me earlier in Mark. Where did we see another child who was laying like a corpse? Do you remember? Jairus? Jairus' daughter? The same posture here. This young boy lays like a corpse so that most of them around him said... He is dead. Remember what Jesus did with Jairus' daughter when he walked in the room? What did he do? He took her by the hand. Jesus takes him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Isn't it amazing? As this event is concluding, the language in the text is moving us from this convulsive and violent moment to what? Calm. Gentle. Jesus had earlier laid calm the wind and the waves. Now he had cast out a demon and laid calm a child in a desperate situation as the child is lying still most think he was dead Jesus takes his hand and up from the grave he arose it's a powerful lesson for Jesus' disciples a powerful one and they follow Jesus in private and what do they ask why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we do that, Jesus? Why couldn't we cast that demon out? And Jesus simply points to one reality. Remember what he said? This demon can't be cast out but by what? Prayer. It's a reminder, it's a sign and a symbol that the disciples at the base of the mountain trying to cast this demon out were doing so on their own strength and their own effort rather than calling on the power of Christ within and available to them. Friends, a lesson for disciples today who are facing hard and uncertain situations is that prayer demonstrates our belief, our faith, our dependence on God, and that God works in amazing, supernatural, incomprehensible ways 
through prayer. I can't describe it. I can't tell you how it works. But for all of our saints who are in the room today that have been seasoned with hard things in their life and have walked through difficult struggles, if I ask them to raise their hand about whether or not they believe that prayer is effective and powerful in those situations, I guarantee every one of them would put their hand up and say yes and amen. It works. It's powerful. It's effective. It demonstrates that we are dependent on Jesus. And that's vital. Prayer is vital for both our endurance and our effectiveness in this world. Perseverance and productivity as his disciples. Prayer is essential to that. Jesus is continuing. He's walking. Imagine the disciples with Jesus right now. He's walking with them to Jerusalem. In Mark's gospel, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem with his disciples, it's coming next week, we begin the trials and the persecution leading unto his death. In many ways, these are his final intimate moments with his disciples. And his next words move us into one of the many great paradoxes of the disciples' identity in Christ. In discipleship, not only does the Christ follower walk a road that is marked by suffering leading to death, but we also walk a road that does not glorify personal or corporate advancement success, and achievement. The journey into Jerusalem with his disciples was not going to end with Jesus on a physical throne. It was not going to be one of these stories of this guy who was born as a carpenter and worked really, really, really hard and put all this effort forward and pulled himself up by his bootstraps and walked into Jerusalem and said, give me the book, give me the throne, I'm sitting there. And a guy that went from being considered nothing as a son of a carpenter to the king of Rome in the Roman Empire, the Caesar. It wasn't going to look like that. Discipleship, friends, it's not a who's who. Our world loves to make Christian growth about who's who. We need to look no further than the most popular pastors, theologians, people that have all the followers on social media. It's all about followers, title, rank. How many people are you influencing? Discipleship looks very different. See, friends, discipleship's about learning how to become the least. In a culture that consistently elevates, celebrates, and glorifies the greatest name, the greatest achievement, the most success, we constantly need to rehearse together this next lesson. Look at verse 30 of Mark chapter 9. They went on from there and they passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Verse 33. But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. (laughs) He sat down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Friends, much of discipleship is about learning how to live faithfully and obediently in both our position as victorious in Christ and our place least among servants. That'll take a lifetime. We don't need to rush this. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian's walk. We somehow along this way, God is teaching us and the Holy Spirit is working within us and Jesus' example is guiding us on how to live faithfully as the least among the victors. And the disciples, they're unnerved by all this talk of death. This is the second time now Jesus has talked about this and They're early in their formation. They're arguing over which of them is going to be the greatest. Who's going to have the most clout, the most power, the highest position next to Jesus? And it doesn't end here. But discipleship, friends, is not a race to the top. Jesus illustrates this further by going to those among the people who would have been considered the least in the day. Who does he go to? The children. They would have been considered the least. Look at verse 37. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. You can almost see the disciples' shock just talking about who the greatest among them was. And now Jesus is naming the children. Whoever welcomes one does not welcome, whoever, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Friends, humility is a hallmark of growing disciples. Notice how quickly the disciples want to move past this lesson. The children are annoying them. The presence of the children is annoying them. John quickly tries to change the subject, does he not? Back to matters of casting out demons. Still perhaps concerned about the failure of some of the other disciples who were in their group. Others who had been doing it successfully. Look at what he says in verse 38. John spoke up, teacher, we saw a man using your name to expel demons. And we stopped him because he wasn't in our group. Hmm. (laughs) Put an end to that guy. Jesus wasn't pleased. Don't stop him. 
No one can use my name to do something good and powerful and in the next breath cut me down. If he is not an enemy, he's an ally. Why anyone, by just giving you a cup of water in my name, is on our side, count on it. God will notice. Jesus' words here continue to reiterate this fact that a disciple is not to consider themselves as greater, better, more important than anyone else. Pride will disrupt and shipwreck spiritual growth and development. It always does. And it was this arrogance that was shown among the disciples when they argued amongst themselves over who was the greatest. And it's going to happen Again, the lesson's repeated, friends, because the lesson is common. It was common then, it's common still today. Jesus' words at the end of this chapter, they rehearse the end of pride and the glory of sin, and they remind the disciples to remain humble and to be at peace with one another. Real discipleship, friends, is a faithful, childlike, long walk towards death. It's a death that paradoxically, for the follower of Jesus, ends in eternal and abundant life. And so we break into chapter 10. And in chapter 10, Jesus is going to once again predict his soon coming death. But before he does that, chapter 10 leads us into a number of Jesus' teachings that highlight the practicality of servanthood and self-denial. Beginning in verses 2 through 12, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question regarding marriage, particularly in regards to divorce. Marriage and singleness are both primary locations where the disciple learns to master the art of servanthood or laying down our lives for one another. And through their teaching on divorce in those days, the Pharisees had made significant loopholes in the laws allowing for them to escape from difficult and uncomfortable marriages where they would have to realize and practice the demands of servanthood themselves. Far be it from them to have to do it. They'd rather just tell other people to do it. And Jesus goes right after them. He corrects their position by quoting from the Old Testament. And he refuses in his address of this matter to give a hot take or to take a side with either of the popular schools of thought in his day. He's refusing to affirm either, in modern vernacular, the far right or the far left of the matter in regards to this situation. It's leading him straight into another opportunity where once again he's going to use children to drive home his point. In verses 13 to 16, the children are once again front and center, whether it's the disciples arguing over who is the greatest or the Pharisees arguing over which school of thought regarding divorce is the most accurate. Which school of thought is Jesus going to affirm? Which one of our groups, the Pharisees or Sadducees, which one of us is going to be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, see, Jesus was on our side? Neither. It was always that way with Jesus. 
Isn't it amazing in this portion of text? Jesus uses children three times as illustration. If the religious leaders and the disciples were going to act like children, Jesus was going to use children to teach them. We spend a great deal of our lives helping, teaching, admonishing those around us to grow up. Just grow up. Why is my seven-year-old acting like a seven-year-old? Grow up. (laughs) Perhaps there are many of us, myself included, that need help learning how to grow down. Jesus condescended. He left and came down. I look at children out playing, wherever they may be playing, and the phrase work less harder comes to mind. But it's a phrase that doesn't jive well with the industriousness of our American lives. And could this be perhaps one of the very reasons why we're going out of our minds with distractions, with busyness, with worry, with anxiety? Good article in the local newspaper this week on busyness. Thanks, Pastor Bob. Saw that this week. Jesus embraces the children. He indignantly rebukes his disciples, and in the original language, it implies that with great fervency, he begins to bless the children as he is embracing them. He sees something in the children, qualities worth affirming, qualities his disciples need to be learning from and practicing themselves, qualities that the religious leaders of the day needed to learn from and practice themselves, perhaps this winsome and carefree playfulness, a busyness that's not consumed or oriented in a way that leads to anxiety and worry, but is rather relaxed and informal and relational and welcoming and gentle and humble and kind. When children get together on the playground and play, none of them care about what social, political, or theological positions they hold. Nobody says, I want to play with you, but first give me your view on predestination. And then that'll determine whether or not we can go down this slide together. Nobody says, I'll let you push me on the swing, but first tell me, who would you vote for in the upcoming election? (laughs) It's not how it goes. Children are quick to receive one another without first determining if their playmate is on their side of the track. But oh... We get stuck. We get stuck. The the race to the top mentality, the choose a side mentality, the polarization that's all over this world that forces us into corners and makes us pick sides is all around us. The haunts and the hounds that move many of us away from these childlike attitudes and behaviors. They're coming into focus as Jesus continues to teach right in this next section in verses 17 to 31. He's bringing us into audience with the very person who in the mind of the young people of the day who were working towards success 
This was their guy. Who comes along in the very next section? The rich, young ruler. All three. He's got it all. He's rich. He's young. That ship sailed for me a long time ago. And he's in power. Ladies, get in line. He has got it all. That's why this is right here in the text, flowing from this very thought. The pride of life is standing before Jesus, and he's seeking to justify himself. He wants to be justified as good. Good teacher. He approaches Jesus. Jesus puts him right in his place. Why do you call me good? And then he exposes how this young ruler's knowledge had left him puffed up with this need to feel justified. Tells us in verse 21 that Jesus actually looks upon this man with compassion. He sees through this man's position. He sees through this man's wealth. He sees through his youth. And he recognized that this man himself, having everything, could not see. For all the treasures he had accumulated on this earth, his coffers in heaven were barren. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Just one. You're a rich young man. You lack one thing. Because this man had all the answers, right? Here's the one thing you lack, Jesus said. Go sell whatever you have and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But the man was unwilling to give up what mattered very little in order to gain that which would have mattered the most. Christ. Jesus then continues to teach in this section about how hard the accumulation of wealth makes it for one to truly embrace the calling that Jesus places on his life. And then here comes Peter again. Peter, come on, Peter. Question, verse 26. Then who can be saved, Jesus, if this guy that has it all, if he can't, who can be saved? Jesus responds in verse 27, this is impossible for mere humans. You cannot work for this. You cannot achieve this on your own merit. But not for God. All things are possible with God. Look at verse 28. Then Peter said to him, look, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, there is no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake or for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive in this age a hundred times as much homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, all with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who were first, like this man that had just left, 
will be last. And the last first. Jesus is walking his disciples towards seeing life through an eternal perspective. Oh, how hard that is for us as disciples to keep in view. Life as eternity. And verse 31 may truly be defined as Jesus' summary statement on discipleship. Many who will be first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The wisdom of the world is turned upside down in following Jesus. The rich young ruler, considered by many as first, would actually be among the last. And Jesus' disciples for that day, considered by many as last, would one day, and even now in a way, be received by him as first. You see, friends, the way of Jesus is a way of life, of victory through sacrifice and suffering. They mark the paths that we travel on in this world, but our promise is of a future that is good and full of hope and full of abundant, eternal life. Look at Mark 10, 32 to 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. This is the third time now saying, see, highlight, underline, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And then what happens? Who's the greatest? But who's going to sit at your right hand and left hand? Jump down to verse 42. Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be the greatest among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave for all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the third and final time in this section that Jesus is going to tell his disciples that he's going to die at the hands of his enemies. And after each time his words are met with fear and they're met with argumentation, those are two companions that to this day still travel hand in hand, fear and argumentation. And the argumentation of the disciples here illustrates that they were still blind to the realities of the kingdom that Jesus was coming to establish. Disciples move past distracting anger and immobilizing fear to embrace the call and commission that they've been given for Jesus today. Jesus himself, as both Son of God and Son of Man, was imagining and applying and practicing servanthood. He was naming it as the very reason he had come into this world to serve, to give his life as a ransom For many, and Jesus' disciples, in many ways, as they lived, they would continue to struggle with their own blindness, their own lack of faith, their own courage. We're going to see this. Some abandon him, some betray him, some deny him, some doubt him. They continue 
to struggle. And so as we conclude chapter 10, Jesus with his disciples from Galilee to Jerusalem are traveling where he leads them right into the encounter with a man who was physically blind. Yet isn't it incredible in this case? Physically blind, yet here, this is intentional, this healing. Spiritually, this man seems very, very capable. A man whose faith was great, a man who lived with courage and conviction, rising to meet the call of Jesus, demonstrating a willingness to follow Jesus into the mystery, to go with him into Jerusalem. Let's end this morning by rehearsing Jesus' encounter with the blind Bartimaeus. Look at verses 46 to 52. This section that began with the healing of a blind man ends with the healing of a blind man. Jesus so desperately wants us to see. They spent time in Jericho as Jesus was leaving town, trailed by his disciples in a parade of people. A blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting alongside the road. When he heard that Jesus the Nazarene was passing by, he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, mercy, have mercy on me. Many tried to hush him up, but he yelled all the louder, Son of David, mercy, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped in his tracks. Call him over. Verse 50, throwing off his coat, he was on his feet at once and came to Jesus. Jesus said, what can I do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. On your way, said Jesus. Your faith has saved and healed you. In that very instance, the man recovered his sight and followed Jesus down that road. Our team is going to come. We're going to conclude this morning's reflections on one of the true meaning of discipleship. And disciples rely on the mercy and the healing of Jesus to give us sight and to respond to our healing by walking by faith, following Jesus on the road set before us, wherever that road might lead. In this instance, the road that Bartimaeus was going to walk with Jesus was going to guide him. Jesus would face his own physical death, burial, and resurrection. So as we live and we breathe today as disciples of Jesus, and I pray that everyone in this room today and listening online is a disciple of Jesus. If you're not, today's the day to do it to confess your sins, to repent, to turn from them, and to give your life to Christ, to begin to follow him. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to look like this for many of our senior saints in this room that have been following Jesus a long time, reading these statements today, these lessons on discipleship. They would tell you this is hard. It is hard. But there's no better walk. There's no more hopeful walk. There's no more better way than the way of Jesus. So who among us is a disciple? A disciple of Jesus is one who has seen, confessed, and embraced Jesus as Lord. By faith, she has taken up her call to die, rejoicing in the sufferings that are a part of this world. Motivated by love, his life is characterized by the fruit of sacrifice as he submits to formation in Christ holding to the hope 
of our good, abundant, and eternal life, we look to Christ as together we faithfully and obediently walk the road set before us wherever that road might lead.